The HD Insights Podcast is brought to you by the Huntington Study Group. The Huntington Study Group is a nonprofit research organization dedicated to conducting clinical research in HD and providing critical training on HD to healthcare professionals. Funding for this podcast is made possible through the generous support of listeners like you and sponsorship grants from organizations like Genentech, Teva Pharmaceuticals, Neurocrine Biosciences, Vasinex, and Wave Life Sciences. Hello, and welcome back to the HD Insights Podcast. I'm Kevin Gregory, Director of Education, Communications, and Outreach at the Huntington Study Group. And I know it's been a, a bit of time since our last episode, but uh, we took some time off for the holiday break and the new year, but we are excited to begin 2020 with some uh, great guests lined up for you on the podcast series. Today's podcast features a conversation with the chair of the Huntington Study Group, Dr. Andrew Fagan. In addition to being chair of the Huntington Study Group, Dr. Fagan is a professor of neurology at New York University's Langone Health, and he's a co-director of the Marlene and Paulo Fresco Institute for Parkinson's and Movement Disorders. He's been involved in HD research since his participation in the Venezuela Collaborative Research Group, which isolated the Huntington's disease gene 25 years ago. And additionally, Dr. Fagan serves as the principal investigator of the SIGNAL trial with the Huntington Study Group and Vasinex. I was excited to sit down and talk with Dr. Fagan for this episode, and we really covered a lot of ground. We spent a good deal of time talking about his experience in Venezuela, from the culture to the excitement of having the announcement come out that the HD gene had been isolated, and then moving on to his early career in which he worked at North Shore and set up the first Huntington's disease clinic, to his time currently as the chair of the Huntington Study Group and the many different initiatives going on with the organization. Well, Dr. Fagan, I appreciate you joining us for the HD Insights podcast, our, our first one to kick off the year 2020. So uh, welcome. Well, thank you very much. It's my pleasure to join you. Dr. Fagan, I want to start out, first of all, um, with your background. I, I know, um, you know a lot of people that have worked with you obviously know the extensive background in, in your history, but um, for the audience members that, uh, that don't know you as well, just uh, you know, start out, um, tell us a, a little bit about your background and, and how you got into Huntington's disease specifically. Well, I went to the University of Rochester to do my neurology residency, and uh, when I was finishing my final year of residency in Rochester, I really didn't know what I was going to do after res residency. I was thinking about pretty much every option, either private practice or general private practice, fellowships in various fields. And I was approached by Ira Olson at that time uh, about doing a fellowship in movement disorders uh, and staying at the University of Rochester. And it seemed like a, a good idea. So I decided to stay and do my, do my fellowship in movement disorders. That was in uh, 1992. Uh, and the fellowship that I did in movement disorders was a clinical fellowship where I learned how to take care of patients and families with movement disorders, um, specifically Parkinson's disease, Huntington's disease, Tourette's syndrome, and other movement disorders. Uh, but it was also um, what was called an experimental therapeutics fellowship. So I also learned about uh, for, with formal training and how to um, conceive of 
um, organize and conduct clinical trials um, for patients with movement disorders. So that was part of my formal training as fellowship. The first year of my, so I had had some exposure to Huntington's disease uh, as a resident, but and, and Ira Schulson had built up a, a, a sizable Huntington's clinic in Rochester at that time. So during my my fellowship, I was exposed much more to patients with and families with Huntington's disease. And in addition to that, I um, I was involved in the Venezuela Huntington's disease project uh, at that time. And in the first year of my fellowship, the fall of 1992, I, I went to Venezuela for the first time for two weeks. And so that was a, an amazing and interesting experience that really got me uh, hooked on uh, Huntington's disease. The, the Venezuela project certainly is is one of the uh, you know the cornerstones of where treatments and, and research for treatments has um, kind of spun off from. So that that must have been a really interesting time. Um, you know, tell, can you talk to the audience a, a little bit about you know that experience in particular? You know, what it was like to go there. What what the people um, in that village that you were working with were like. What you know the overall experience. What were the you know the most memorable things you took from that? Well, first, I, I guess I would say I, I, um, it was an amazing experience culturally just to see the level of, um, you know, the towns that we went to there, m- most of the towns and most of the families and patients that we visited there were in, in profound poverty. And so that just seeing that part of it made a very strong impression on me. Um, but of course, they were not just struggling with many of these people were not just struggling with poverty. They were struggling with this devastating degenerative neurologic disease as well. And, and uh, so that that kind of um, uh, double challenge was really uh, made us really made a strong impression on me. And um, the, the, the there was, so there was that aspect of it, seeing you know huge numbers of Huntington's patients and family members, you know, on a daily basis for two weeks, uh, it was an incredible experience. Uh, but there was also the other side of it of meeting colleagues and meeting senior researchers um, from really from all over the world as part of that project it was kind of opened up my eyes to what it could mean to be an academic um, neurologist. So I think there were a lot of a lot of uh, things that I got, uh, you know, out of that experience that really kind of shaped the rest of my career. How did the how did the people of of Venezuela react to you? Had they had they been exposed to researchers before coming in? Um, you know, was it as much of a culture shock for them, or you know, what was what was your impression of um, the reaction from the locals? Well, I think many of them had been at that point, you know, the project had been going on for quite a long time, you know, so this was far from the first year when, when this project was happening. So I think many of the people there, had, you know, they, they had been through this before they had, you know, they'd had annual visits from uh, Nancy Wexler and her group uh, of researchers for many years. So, uh, but they, it was something I got the sense that they looked forward to people, you know, came out and came down to the local clinic to be, to be, be greeted and seen by doctors that they had seen in previous years. So, um, yeah, it was kind of a happening, you know, when we would go to these various small towns. Um, and, uh, so that was an interesting thing to see. I don't think it, it was much of a, uh, of a new experience for them at that point, because many of them had had this experience um, for many years at that point. But, but I think it was something they anticipated and looked forward to, and and came out for um, with enthusiasm. 
You talked about, um, you know, the experience and, and, you know, being hit, first of all, with, you know, kind of the overwhelming poverty uh, situation. In terms of working with the, the colleagues that you met and, you know, that being your first experience, kind of, you know, broadening what you thought that uh, that type of research could turn into, who were some of the people that, that you felt you bonded with most closely or, or, or people that you looked to that you felt, you know, um, really served in a, in a strong mentoring role for you on that, uh, on that experience? Well, certainly, first and foremost, I would say Ira Schulzman, who had been my mentor in Rochester and was in Venezuela when I was there that first year as well. Um, I would say he, you know, he was a very, um, you know, set a great example for an academic neurologist with clinical research interests who had, you know, really spent his career working in that field and, uh, you know, set a, a great example for a junior person who, who uh, was thinking about having a career like that as well. Um, the other people that I would say, uh, of course, that come to mind are Nancy Wexler. And by, by the way, many of these people I'm talking about, I still to this day have working relationships with, speak to on a regular basis. Um, so it's been a kind of a career long um, um, uh, relationship. Uh, so, um, so Nancy Wexler, of course, um, who ran the Venezuela project, um, may, uh, became close friends with her as well and, and remain close with her to this day. Um, I would say the other people, kind of senior people that, that, that uh, were involved that um, I developed relationships with and again, continue to have uh, contact with are um, Anne Young. Um, and um, I had a good relationship at the time with, uh, with her uh, husband at the time, Jack, Jack Penny, who uh, sadly passed away. Um, and I'm um, trying to think of other, there were, and there were quite a few others, uh, um, you know, um, Juan Sanchez Ramos, who's, who I still see at the Huntington Study Group meetings every year and still have a, relate, uh, uh, a relationship with. Um, there are many others. Um, so, yeah, so those, those connections really have had uh, a lot of meaning for me in, in my career. Yeah, I'm curious, too, you know, having, having been there on the ground and, you know, the fact that everybody looks back to that that watershed mark um, in the history of Huntington's disease research. What was it like for you and and for the team when you know the news broke, or you know once you once the the group realized they had found it, um, you know they they had isolated the gene. What was what was the sense? What was what was the you know the the feeling among you and your colleagues? Yeah, so I was actually. In Venezuela, my memory is correct. I was actually in Venezuela uh, in '93 when it was announced that the gene mutation had been identified, and there was a, as you would imagine, there was a lot of excitement. Everybody was uh, very interested and excited to hear about it, and um, um, a lot of discussion about it. Uh, and I think there was a lot, you know, a lot of excitement, a lot of hope uh, that this would quickly lead to effective therapies. Um, and, um, so I think, yeah, I would just say, I mean, people, I don't, I don't know if it really came as a, as a surprise. I mean, I think people expected the gene to be identified, but I, it did, you know, when it was actually announced, I think it did come as a surprise and people were very happy and very excited about it with, with a lot of hope for the future. Um, so coming out of, of Venezuela, you know, kind of, uh, you know, that, being, you know, not long after you really kind of got into the the field, um, what happened next? I know, you know, currently you're 
uh, you're at NYU. What was the you know your your career prog- progression following Venezuela? So I I did two years of fellowship, um, in '92 to '94. Stayed on as junior faculty, uh, senior instructor for one year at the University of Rochester, and then uh, was recruited to uh, North Shore uh, University Hospital in '95. uh, to help build a movement disorders group there and to help build a clinical trials group as well. And to um, and because of my interest in Huntington's disease, also to build a Huntington's disease uh, clinic there, a Huntington's disease center there. So I moved to North Shore Hospital in 95 and proceeded to do those things. And um, so I started doing clinical trials and um, started um, Right from the beginning, I can't remember the exact details of how this happened, but there was a lot of the local interest. This was on Long Island, uh, in, in having a Huntington's disease expert there, and a lot of there was a lot of excitement that somebody with experience with Huntington's disease was coming. There was a Huntington's disease uh, Society of America (HDSA) chapter on Long Island that had, you know, was very uh, active and very interested and and excited about a Huntington's disease specialist coming there. So I. I remember uh, them reaching out to me, me re- reaching out to them, speaking at support groups, and and uh, making an effort to really build up the Huntington's Disease Center there. And there was, and there we we were able to do that fairly quickly, um, and be um, um, ultimately I forget exactly what year we're we're designated as an HDSA Center of Excellence. And to, you know, I, I took it upon myself to to try to build a, a um, multidisciplinary center there with a psychiatrist and a social worker and um, uh, relationship, good relationship with the genetic, genetic uh, medical genetics office and, and genetic counselors. Um, and um, so, you know, so I, I, with, with the development of the Huntington's disease center there, uh, we also started doing clinical trials for Huntington's disease. Um, and then, you know, the other the other um, opportunity that there was for me in, in, at North Shore was that I joined uh, David Eidelberg, who had kind of started the movement disorders group there. Um, I was the first person who recruited there. Um, he he was uh, his uh, who was and is an internationally known uh, expert in imaging and applications of imaging to study patients with movement disorders. And um, so it would seem like a natural fit for me as a junior faculty member there to uh, get involved in that. And, and so he mentored me uh, on a K award in which I learned about how to do uh, imaging research and, and began working on imaging projects, uh, both for actually for Parkinson's, Huntington's disease, and to some extent Tourette syndrome and other movement disorders as well. And um, yeah, so um, that's that's kind of how my career got going. It was kind of, a, I think it was a good choice for me to go there. Uh, it gave me an opportunity to kind of combine my interest in clinical trials and Huntington's disease uh, and other movement disorders with uh, imaging as a, as a potential outcome for measure for clinical trials. And so, um, yeah, I was there for 22 years um, until, so from 95, uh, in, until 2017, when I was recruited to NYU, which is where I am now. You, you mentioned um, in, in starting the, the clinic uh, at North Shore that uh, you work to put together a multidisciplinary care team. That's one of the themes, I think, in this, you know, throughout um, the evolution of this podcast series that, you know, we've talked to a lot of folks that have been in clinics or, or have input on, you know, treatments for patients that it, 
the the multidisciplinary approach to care is is really critical, and it's it, it often can be overlooked. So, uh, can you can you talk a little bit about that experience? What were what were some of the what were some of the challenges that uh, that you encountered potentially starting that up? And and talk a little bit more about you know how um, multidisciplinary care can can really benefit a patient with Huntington's. Yeah, I mean, I think people with degenerative neurologic diseases um, for which we are lacking, you know, disease-modifying therapies or therapies, to, you know, to treat many of the symptoms even of, of, of these diseases um, can have many problems, obviously, that, that require many different levels of expertise to treat. So, uh, of course, people with Huntington's disease can have a movement disorder, which can be treated sometimes with medications and sometimes not. So, um, you know, things like physical therapy and exercise can be of value. Um, and they can also have a behavioral disorder, psychiatric disorder, which sometimes can be out, you know, beyond the scope of, of for example, a neurologist. So it could be, you know, critical to have expertise from a psychiatrist or a psychologist or a social worker. Uh, and, you know, I think it's, even more important, maybe, or even better, to have people with those disciplines who know about Huntington's disease, know about the specific disease. And the way that happens is by getting them involved. And at the beginning, they may not know so much, but they'll quickly learn if they see a lot of patients. And um, so it's kind of a, a, a self-reinforcing um, thing. You know, you go someplace and you're interested in Huntington's disease, and you say, well, I'm going to see patients with Huntington's disease, and, um, you know, part of that is you end up referring people to psychiatrists, or you end up referring people to social workers, or you end up referring people to physical therapists, or to genetic counselors, and those people may initially may have not seen a patient with Huntington's disease, or may have only seen a couple of patients with Huntington's disease, so initially they do their best, but as time goes on, they will have developed expertise, and then at that point, um, you start to say, oh, this person is interested, this person is now knowledgeable, I'm going to start to send all my patients. And then eventually you start to say, well, maybe there's some way I can bring these people into my clinic and, and, uh, um, and start to have patient, these, these services available to patients as they come in. Of course, you know, not every Huntington's patient is going to need all of those services, but I do think that having them available can be of great value to people um, to treat this, you know, this kind of multifaceted disorder. This is not a disorder that, you know, clearly fits into one uh, discipline. There, it, it, it's, uh, there are a lot of things going on and a lot of uh, expertise is needed. Um, and, and I think for, for conditions like that, it's, it's very valuable to have a multidisciplinary um, uh, environment, put it that way. Again, we're here with Dr. Andrew Fagan on the HD Insights podcast. And, and Dr. Fagan, you mentioned in talking about your experience getting into clinical trials, um, the use of imaging. And I know you have a you know you have a distinct interest in imaging and biomarkers associated with imaging. Can you talk to the you know tell the audience a little bit about the importance of imaging? I think. You know, people may think of Huntington's disease as, um, you know, just a movement disorder or, you know, uh, people with uh, chorea who have, you know, trouble with balance. But, you know, the role of imaging, especially in clinical trials and 
um, kind of tracking progression of the disease is extremely important, correct? Yeah, that's right. So uh, the, um, you know, as, as you mentioned, there, people have symptoms of, of Huntington's disease. In general, these symptoms get worse over time, but there are some fluctuations in how the symptoms express themselves. People can go through periods of time where, for example, their chorea is bad because they're under a lot of stress or under a lot of pressure or not getting enough sleep or some other reason, and other periods of time where their, their chorea may be less severe. So it is true, though, over the long haul, if you follow uh, you know, motor features of the disease, for example, they do get worse over time. But there can be um, you know, some fluctuations, and we saw that in Venezuela. We would see, especially early on in the, you know, in the course of the disease, you'd see people <coughs> excuse me, who, who looked like they, you know, you could, you, it's very easy to see the, the motor manifestations of the disease one year, and then the next year they'd come back, and it was, it was, it was not so obvious, put it that way. Um, so you can do clinical trials. And use clinical outcome measures, and people have done that, and you can be very effective in doing that for, for again, for disease-modifying therapies. But you're going to need a lot of patients, and you're going to need to follow them for a long period of time. So the idea is that we know that there are certain um, changes in the brain that happen in Huntington's disease over time. And um, I think the expectation is that those changes um, are less likely to have uh, a lot of variation around them at, 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 at given times over, over at given points over time so that um, you know if you did an MRI and measured the volume of the caudate for example at one time point there would be an expectation that a year from now that volume would be reduced and you could measure that change over over that period of time and that would be valuable in terms of assessing whether a therapy is slowing the progression of the disease. Um, that's just one example, um, but um, the uh, so that that's the idea of, of imaging as a biomarker. I think it's the idea of many biomarkers to give kind of a more objective, less variable uh, measure of, of of disease severity and how it's changing over time as a way of of providing a kind of uh, uh, additional information about whether you're affecting the progression of the disease in a clinical trial. So MRI volumetrics is something that's really become a leading outcome measure in, um, in disease-modifying therapies for Huntington's disease. Uh, I mentioned caudate, but of course other structures are being measured as well, as well and are important in Huntington's disease. Uh, and then I, you know, I also had an interest in using um, a measure of regional brain metabolism called fluorodeoxyglucose with positron emission tomography, or PET, so FDG-PET, and um, that was an area that I worked in for, for many years and I'm still working on and uh, to trying to develop that as an outcome measure uh, as, uh, of um, how the different regions of the brain interact with each other over time in patients with Huntington's disease. And we are using that as an outcome measure in, in the signal trial, which I'm involved in now. In your experience, you know, you, you kind of go into these, uh, you know, this type of research and working with these biomarkers, like you said, expecting certain results. Have, have there been things that have really surprised you or caught you off guard in the course of, of doing clinical trials or research of this kind? Um, you know, I guess the answer is that there have been. It's a little hard to think off the cuff of what some of those things, but one thing I will say that I, I remember has made a strong impression on me is um, in, in Huntington's trials, but in other trials as well, but it's something I have seen in Huntington's trials, people who participating in trials um, showing dramatic improvement in the trial, some cases really, you know, 
such so much improvement that you think, well, this the person must be on the study drug, um, and the study drug must be working, only to find out that the person was on the placebo. So it made me that 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 observation and having seen that happen on more than one occasion has made me um, uh, kind of um, just more careful about interpreting the you know the you know whether or not it's a, a, a drug is working in an ongoing blinded clinical trial that is something that has surprised me it's the degree of uh, placebo response in some trials right so the so the you know the the term placebo effect is a, a real tangible thing then what, what you know what from you know your your perspective is do you think causes that is it you know why why such a dramatic turnaround if they're not actually on, you know, the, the specific uh, trial drug? Well, I think um, when we talk about the placebo response, there's a lot of things that go into determining the placebo response. I think one of the big things that we don't talk about very much is, the, is just the inherent variability of the symptoms of, of, these, of Huntington's disease, but of the other neurodegenerative diseases. As I mentioned, people can have you know, good days and bad days, good weeks and bad weeks, and you could see somebody who looks like they have, you know, even not in a clinical trial, who's who has, you know, profound symptoms, uh, you know, or at least more profound symptoms on one occasion, and see them a month or two or three months later, and they look less impaired. There's this there. There's just the the the, the variability of how uh, people can present clinically and feel clinically is is substantial, and so. I think if you think about it as as this kind of very variable presentation, somebody can present at one end of that variable presentation at one time, and the other end of that variable of that presentation another time, and still be within what you would consider normal for that that disease. And I think some of that is you see some of that with the placebo response. People are given a given a. a, a a drug. They don't know what it, whether it's the drug or the placebo, and either they, um, uh, they're you know because they're psychologically motivated to feel better. Maybe they end up in that kind of more within that range, but in the milder side of that range, or to some degree there could be just randomness to it. People just come back and they're doing great, and and, and but again within the range of what would be what we could see, even if if nothing was being given for treatment. So I think there's an element of just the variability in the clini- clinical, not so much the clinical measures, but in the cl- how, how the people actually are doing at a, at, at, with their disease. And we see that in Huntington's disease, we see it in Parkinson's disease um, and other degenerative diseases as well. We'll return to the interview on the HD Insights podcast in a moment. We hope that you're enjoying this episode. As a nonprofit organization, the Huntington Study Group relies on the generous support from the community and listeners like you to continue bringing you in-depth content on HD, like this podcast series. If you like what you're hearing and are interested in supporting HD Insights through a grant or donation, please contact us through our email address, info at hsglimited.org, or by calling toll-free at 1-800-487-7671. We greatly appreciate your support. And now, back to our episode. 
Dr. Fagan, I, I want to shift gears now a little bit and, and talk about um, your role uh, and uh, experience um, as uh, as the chair of the, the Huntington Study Group. So you've you know you've been a, a, a longtime member uh, of the organization and um, are about two years into you know your your current term. Talk a little bit about your experience with the HSG um, and, and you know some of the benefits that that you've seen, some of the the growth that you've seen over the years, and and um, you know the the type of effect that it's had on uh, your role as a researcher? Yeah, I've, well, I've been involved with the Huntington Study Group really from its inception, 20, you know, more than 25 years ago when I was a fellow at that time. And um, I've had many roles with the Huntington Study Group over the years. I've been an investigator on many Huntington Study Group trials. Um, and um, I was involved as uh, I chaired the program committee for the Clinical Research Symposium for many years. I've had many, many roles um, in, aside from being investigator in clinical trials. I've been a medical monitor and uh, data safety monitoring board. So I've had a lot of, uh, lot of opportunities through the Huntington Study Group. And uh, that's meant a lot to my career. I, I actually think the Huntington Study Group, you know, is an amazing um, group, of collaborative group among amazingly dedicated um, and motivated individuals, you know, investigators, coordinators and nurses, um, uh, psychologists, uh, all kinds of other care providers. Um, and they, they all come together as part of this organization that is dedicated to developing better therapies for Huntington's disease. It's quite an amazing organization. But so I think it's an amazing organization that is dedicated to helping patients and families with Huntington's disease. But I think actually from an academic perspective, from the, the perspective of someone who uh, has experienced benefits of being part of the HSG for my academic development, I see, I kind of see it through that, that um, uh, perspective as well. So uh, there have been a lot of opportunity when you participate in a multi-center clinical trial, you get to know other uh, people in your field from around the country and sometimes from around the world when you um, go to these meetings, you meet people, they get to know you, and you can get involved in these projects. And I think it's a great opportunity for junior people to kind of get their, get their, uh, uh, get, get their careers going and get, get known in their fields and get connected within, within the, um, the, the academic world of Huntington's disease and, and movement disorders. And there's lots of opportunities for people to get involved in these, in, in committees or in, uh, uh, other projects, uh, organizing um, educational meetings, organizing, uh, helping to organize and run clinical trials, um, as I mentioned, from the perspective of being a medical monitor or being on the data safety monitoring committee or being on a steering committee for a clinical trial. Lots of opportunities um, for people to get involved. And so from an you know, academic neurologist's perspective, I think it, it, there, there's, a lot, there's a lot to be gained from being uh, involved with a group like the Huntington Study Group. And I think, you know, we see that as people come to our meeting uh, every year, more and, more and more people are getting interested and more and more people are coming every year. So it's really, it's really been gratifying to see that. You mentioned your role um, on the SIGNAL trial is, is one initiative. We can talk about that in a moment. But what are some of the other initiatives that, um, you know, you're helping spearhead with the HSG currently? And, and what are some of, you know, your goals as chair for the organization as it, you know, moves on into the future? 
Yeah, so I, I guess I would um, break it down into several categories. I mean, one of the areas that we've become over the years, the HSG has realized that we have to be involved in is in education and, and not just education of of our membership, but although that's a key thing, but also education for patients and families. So um, we have uh, we have separate education committees uh, for different um, populations. So we have uh, education committee for patients and families that develops educational programs uh, for patients and families. We have an educational committee um, for our membership that helps people um, learn about uh, how to do clinical trials and what's and what's required and trains people on the conduct of clinical trials. Um, and um, we have an education committee for caregivers, people who are physicians and other caregivers out in the community who are trying to learn about Huntington's disease and do their best to take care of patients with Huntington's disease. So developing these education programs is one big priority, and we've made a lot of progress on that over the years um, um, and hope to make additional progress and to, to continue to develop those, those programs. Um, I think uh, other areas uh, that we're interested in, of course, we're the main priority of the HSG is to develop uh, better therapies for Huntington's disease. And so a major part of what we do is to try to, is to be involved in new clinical trials. And so uh, we have our two ongoing clinical trials at the moment, the SIGNAL trial and the CONNECT uh, trial, but we're we're working on developing other working with other sponsors to develop new clinical trials that we're hoping will have a significant impact and for the better for patients with Huntington's disease in the future. Um, and then um, the I guess as part of that, we're also interested in uh, developing more outreach to patients and families in the sense that we want to get people engaged more in clinical trials, and so we have projects that we're working on, there's one we announced at, the, at uh, our last annual meeting called My HD Story, in which we're going to have an online um, platform for people to come on and tell us how Huntington's disease is impacting them, patients, families, caregivers. Um, and um, we're hoping to learn from this about, you know, what are what is important to, to people who are dealing with Huntington's disease. And so that we can focus our efforts better and can, can address whether therapies that are being developed are addressing what matters to people, basically. So that's another major initiative that we're, we're taking on. Um, yeah, I'm sure there are other things that, I, that I'm forgetting offhand, but, but, uh, um, but those are some of our major initiatives. That's a pretty extensive list, and, and I'll share with the audience um, information on how they can get, uh, how they can learn more um, when we wrap up the podcast at the end. Um, but I did want to touch on a, a couple points you brought up um, with the Connect HD uh, study. And we we know that's just getting underway uh, in terms of site startup, activation, and recruitment. Um, but I'd be remiss if I didn't ask you uh, about the signal trial, which you're the, the principal investigator on. Um, th that trial is kind of, it, it's starting to wind down, correct? Uh, as, uh, as we've heard, it, it sounds like by the end of this year, um, we anticipate top-line data. Uh, do you want to talk a little bit about, yeah, about that trial and your role there? Yeah, so this trial has been going on since I think we started in 2015. There have been uh, two co cohorts in the trial. Um, 
cohort A and a cohort B. In cohort A, we, we, we developed some, uh, we did an interim analysis and used that data to help um, uh, determine the size and uh, duration of the trial for cohort B. And cohort B finished enrollment at the end of 2018. Uh, and um, subjects will be leaving the trial, uh, the last subjects will be leaving the trial at the end of June, and then there'll be a period of time where where the data will be cleaned and, and made sure made sure that it's, it's in good shape. And then, yeah, then we're expecting in the probably the, the probably third or fourth quarter of this year to have uh, the final results of the signal trial. So we're excited about that. That's excellent. That's uh it'll be a culmination of a, a lot of work um, over the past you know four or five years like you said um do, dr fagan i i, I just kind of want to wrap up and, and circle back um kind of on a personal note i know you know we talked about you know how you got involved in huntington's disease but the the one thing i forgot to mention or ask you about at the very beginning is i, I i've seen in in your biography that um uh, your father was also a doctor and, and, and kind of a, an inspiration. Um, you know, is, uh, tell me a little bit about that growing up. You know, what uh, what was what was his focus on, and and what about the work that he was doing got you really excited to get into the medical field? Yeah, so my my dad was a psychiatrist, and kind of a, in some ways, a kind of an old fashioned psychiatrist. Really, did mostly I think psychotherapy. Of course, he did prescribe. He was an MD, prescribed medications. But I think in those days, um, um, maybe more than today. I don't I don't, I don't want to make any claims of knowing, but but he was mostly focused on psychotherapy. And just a, he, I think he set a really good example for being a good doctor and being really caring about his patients and really. Uh, being a dedicated um, uh, uh, physician and um, just a kind um, and gentle person and and um, and very thoughtful, very smart, very kind of uh, uh, somebody that could you know as as obviously as a son could be admired, but I think could be admired by anybody and and so uh, yeah, I, I felt like I, I I have been influenced by by him and his attitude towards his patients, his attitude towards his career. To quite a large degree, I have been influenced by that. I would say, yeah. All right. Well, Dr. Fagan, I, I can't thank you enough for taking time out of your schedule to chat with us and and talk about, you know, your experiences from Venezuela, from starting the the clinic at North Shore to your work now currently with the Huntington Study Group. Um, again, appreciate it on behalf of our audience, and thank you so much. Oh, it's been been a pleasure um, and uh, chatting with you, and um, I'd I'd be happy to do it again sometime. Thank you. Well, that concludes our first episode of the HD Insights podcast for 2020. We look forward to bringing you many more as the year progresses, and we have an exciting lineup of guests planned. So please check back. Make sure you download and subscribe to the podcast, and please. If you have suggestions for topics or guests you'd like to hear from, feel free to leave comments and let us know. We hope you enjoyed this edition of the HD Insights Podcast. Remember to subscribe to this podcast to make sure you automatically get the latest episodes to your device. Please rate and review this podcast with your feedback so we can continue providing the best possible content. 
If you are interested in providing financial support for the work needed to produce this content, you can do so by becoming an ongoing sponsor or through a tax-deductible donation. To do so, please email us at info at hsglimited.org. That's I-N-F-O at hsglimited.org. Or by calling our toll-free number at 1-800-487-7671. Thank you for joining us on the HD Insights Podcast from the Huntington Study Group.